Life Out Loud is a literary nonfiction podcast series that features real student stories. Born in a John Jay College creative nonfiction writing classroom in the fall 2015 semester, Life Out Loud seeks to diversify the perspectives typically shared in the CNF genre. Our project aims to amplify voices seldom heard through artful truth-telling simply because we believe that all stories matter. We make them, and they make us. You can always listen at lifeoutloudpodcast.com. Hi there. Welcome to Life Out Loud, a new literary nonfiction podcast through which we tell true, maybe a little bit too true stories. My name is Mandy, and I'm one of your co-hosts for today. And I'm Karen. Thank you for joining us for episode three, entitled The Games We Played. In the stories we'll hear tonight, students' writers reflect on the past through the vehicle of childhood play, something that surely means something different to each of them. So our first story tonight is Dance Camp by Tatiana. She is 20 years old and has lived in Brooklyn for the past 15 years after moving to the U.S. with her parents from Ukraine. She's an English major at John Jay College, and while she has a hard time deciding what her career is going to be, she currently desires to practice animal law. She loves all animals, but she holds a special place in her heart for her cross-eyed Siamese companion, who coincidentally is her favorite family member. When she's not smothering her cat with love, she's at her second home, the gym. Which is why you'll almost never see her wearing any other shoes but sneakers. Otherwise, she frequently gets anxiety due to deadlines on which she procrastinates and enjoys vegan fast food. I went to sleepaway camp five consecutive summers, a month long each year, starting around the time I was eight or nine years old. It was a dance camp, although we didn't do much dancing. The camp itself was not very legal. The elderly couple who ran the dance school I went to back in Brooklyn would rent a house in upstate New York, charge a fee, and take care of us, mostly all girls, during the summer. We usually told people we met there that we were sisters. Whether they believed us or not is hard to tell. The house was two stories high, including the basement, which is where the older girls usually slept. I slept there my last two years, when I was old enough. I liked camp a lot. Sometimes I got homesick, but it was forgotten the moment a friend and I would verse each other in Mario Kart on our Nintendo DSs, or when we would be at the pool, or when late at night we'd conjure up Bloody Mary in the bathroom, which I would then, subsequently, be afraid to go back into. Amongst all the girls there, I was never the popular girl. I wasn't even a popular girl. I knew that. Popular girls were loud and outspoken. They came up with the plans that everyone wanted to be a part of. They had things that seemed unattainable for the conventional girl. They read Teen Vogue before they were teens. This brings me to Rosa, with her perfectly straight brown hair and her body skinny skinny. There was not a single article of clothing that her body rejected, everything fitting her thin figure, her slim legs, as if they were made for her. I don't know if she knew that I silently worshipped her, but it wasn't just what I esteemed to look like physically that drew me to her. It was her charisma, the way she carried herself through her reign. She never left the top. Her father worked at Bloomingdale's, and I assumed that's why she never ran out of things to show us. Whatever free things she didn't get from her dad, I bet she got because both her parents were probably rich. Sure, they lived in Brooklyn and took their daughter to the same dance school my parents took me to, but that didn't stop Rose's mom from dressing like Coco Chanel herself. I knew I was jealous when she showed us her Build-A-Bears or her Chanel makeup bag, but I couldn't dislike her for it. She never came off as pompous, smiling as she did her show and tell bit. Her lips rarely ever parted. 
Her smile never detectably showed intent to make us envy her. After all, we did so without her having to try. This was all the more reason to be intrigued by her, to like her. Nearly every day, the girls and I went to the community pool, this large pool surrounded by a fence that was right on the lake. We spent nearly a third of the day there, pretending to be mermaids while we swam, tucking our legs together tightly, or going to the food court for some curly fries gorged with melted cheese. Other times, we would just spend time below the food court, in the arcade, winning stuffed animals from the only claw machine that ever worked, or eating cowtails. After our long day there came to an end, our hair chlorinated and reeking of all the things kids like, we went to pile into the van that would take us back to the house. From there, at the top of our to-do list was showering. This wasn't so simple for a group of girls in one house, considering that we had to share one shower. Hot water was a commodity. It was crucial when you showered. Whoever went last was not only left with cold water, but was also last to join the group activities that all the other girls were already busy with. If things started without you, you got left behind. And so, for both physical and political reasons, it was important to get to the shower first, or at the very least, not last. I soon learned that my first strategy, getting into the van first, proudly winning that part of the race, that which took part in the parking lot by the pool entrance where we were picked up, left me forced into the back of the van. By the time we arrived back at the house, that win left me, if not nearly last, dead last in the showering order, since those closest to the van exits could run ahead first. They had a head start. My earlier win would leave me in last place. All the prizes would be handed out to those who came before me, and all I would get is a crummy, menacing three minutes in freezing water. And by the time it was over, I would have to be with the rest of the girls, only to find them already ensconced in something that I was late to be a part of. One strategy for winning the great shower race was to pick your bathing buddy carefully. Having a buddy was not only good for conservation of our precious commodity, but also if you had a buddy she could run to the shower and get there to hold it until you arrived. But who would want to shower with the girl who comes last? In essence, securing who you showered with was maybe, if not as important, more important than getting there first. This created a system in which strategic selection of partners was integral for success. Except the system can be hard for the conventional girl. I did most of the asking. Just like I always ran to get to the van first, I asked first too. The girl usually depended on who I hung out with most of the day. I had to start early too. I was afraid of hearing, I'm sorry, I'm already showering with. That would mean I'd have to be alone or pathetically ask someone else. By asking before the other girls did, I could land myself in the safe zone. But I grew wary of asking. Why didn't anyone ever ask me? Was it because I was last or, at the very least, not usually first? And so, I enrolled in a new kind of race. I no longer wanted to be the first one to the van, and no longer wanted to ask first either. I needed a new plan, one that could get the girls to know that showering with me would mean a warm water prize for them too. I came up with a system of my own. I didn't speed past the other girls to the van when we left the pool. Instead, I took my sweet time, and it was indeed sweet knowing the outcome. Last to enter the van left me closest to the door. As soon as the sound of the crunching gravel that blanketed the ground in front of the house was heard beneath the tires, my legs were, I was ready to move. And by the time the roar of the van numbed to purr, I was out the sliding door first, running, disregarding the need for a towel and a change of clothes. On the first day I tried this new plan, I cleaned the bathroom before any of the other girls even got down the stairs. My friend Diana came running down next. She turned her head to look at me, and between breaths, 
asked me if she could shower with me. I knew I could have said no, but she asked me if I wanted to, and I wasn't going to turn her away in my victory. So I let her. More and more, the other girls soon began to ask me to shower with them. I knew that it was likely only because I always got there first, but it was enjoyable nevertheless. It felt good to win. It felt good to know that people wanted to spend time with you, regardless of the manner of the time spent. It's as if I got up on stilts and got to see the world at a higher altitude, the view a naturally tall person sees every day. The shower was my stilts. The days when I felt like I truly won, though, were when Rosa asked me to shower with her. In previous weeks, it had felt good to ask her and to hear her say yes, or watch her nod her head in agreement. But that was nothing in comparison to when she was the one to ask me. It was invigorating that a girl of her caliber wanted to shower with me. While I was in the shower with her, in the tub with warm water sprinkling on top of us both, I could really be myself. And there, there was no race. And most importantly, no need to impress her or to catch her attention like there was on the outside, beyond the door that, that would disconnect us in just a few moments and the shower was over. Her attention was either on shampoo or on me. That's a whole 50% chance. And there... There was never talk of Teen Vogue or Build-A-Bears. In fact, we didn't say much of anything worth remembering. But what I do remember is that she would smile, with her teeth, water running down her face, coating her lips, and animating the rest of her. And me? I would smile too. But I was smiling because I finally felt like a Rosa. What it must be like to finally feel like a Rosa. So... Tatiana is actually here with us today. And uh, hi, Tatiana. How are you? Hi, I'm okay. How are you? We are so happy to have you with us here today to answer all of our questions about this beautiful piece, Dance Camp. Um, so, yeah, thank you for coming. I loved your piece. The question is, are you still this competitive? My goodness, you were strategizing and thinking about which side of the van you should be on, how to get other girls to ask you to shower with them. And most importantly, how to get the Queen Bee Rosa to notice you. Tell us, are you still this competitive? Um, it depends um, in what in regards to. I still am competitive when it comes to like the train. I do get to the door before <laughs> anyone else can. It just I find that people slow me down, so I have to be first. <laughs> <laughs> so yes. Still yeah, I guess so. <laughs> I love that. If it makes you feel better, so do I. Yes. <laughs> it's a brawl on that train. I feel like a lot of people do that. And then there's this one woman who would get in front of me and I'd be like, well, what are you doing? Always. It's always an old woman. Yeah. So you feel bad for pushing her? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but not bad enough. <laughs> no, I, I don't push her. her. I gently, you know, nudge her. her. And I scooch. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Part of the competition is in the piece is revolvent around popularity so and you speak a lot about you were not the popular girl because you weren't first and you didn't have this high ranking at first yet the popularity is not a big theme in this piece so I'm curious were you competitive for popularity at all or for the hot water or for the activities that the girls did after showering or for everything like as a whole well, where did it stem from the the whole, I'm going to call it the triad, the popularity, the hot water, and the activities, they are symbiotic. You can't have one without the other. Like, the hot, because you get to the shower first, you, people shower with you, you get to know them more, and you become the popular person. Mm -hmm. So, they're all connected to each other. 
mm-hmm. which is exactly why I felt that if I get there first, more people will be friends with me. <laughs> it's kind of sad, but... <laughs> no, it's, it's kind of smart to see how that dynamic works when you're so young. But to be like strategizing and unpuzzling this formula for popularity and formula for being liked, I find that very interesting. This piece is really great because I feel like everyone can relate to it. Like we all have a Rosa that we think is like, oh my gosh, she's so perfect. She's always so well put together, you know, and we all can kind of like just see that relationship. But then you don't talk about Rosa as if you dislike her at all. Um, It's kind of like. You found a really creative way and really honest way to describe her. I feel like she could have easily come off as someone that was conceited and boasting of how great she was. But you presented her in such a positive light. I would like to know, was it challenging for you to convey to the listener how you feel about Rosa and presenting Rosa in a positive light? It wasn't at all because it's exactly how I felt about her. I never did see her in a negative light. She was always a positive source to me. Mm seems that that could be misconstrued as jealousy um i really was never jealous of her i just admired her as a person as a character so moving in a different direction your piece touches on something very unique that i'm sure people can be taken aback by when they first come across it but you talk about your younger self showering with other people which brings up nudity yet from my point of understanding in the piece and please like correct me if i'm wrong this piece touches upon nudity without like sexual connotations and sexual tension. So were you at any point in the writing process worried that your audience might perceive the showering scene with Rosa as something different than maybe innocent young people would have perceived it? Not young people, like kids would have perceived it? No, just as with the jealousy and like lack or lack thereof, mm-hmm. uh, I didn't see the showering as a sexual connotation. I always knew that nudity itself was kind of a sexual connotation, hence why my parents never let me see naked people on TV. (laughs) Yeah. But uh, no, it was never like that. It was just more like a camaraderie, but a naked camaraderie. (laughs) Naked camaraderie. (laughs) That makes sense because I'm sure some of our listeners have been to camp before, like I've been to camp before, and mine was a little bit different than yours in terms of we had an open shower where like 10 people could go in at a time. And, and so you see everybody naked. <laughs> and it was mixed in terms of females of different ages. So I'd go in and I'd see a 13-year-old's. More mature or, females. Or yeah, a 40-year-old. And so mm-hmm. it was like pretty wow, open. what kind of camp mm-hmm. is this? Um, it was a church camp. Oh. Oh, yeah, oh that's... Yeah, I did not expect... Uh, but yeah, it never really occurred to me while I was writing this piece that it might be misconstrued as uh, nudity, like with a sexual connotation at all. It was just... For me, that's what, what it was. That's all it was. It was just a shower. That's yeah. it. I think it's kind of important because as a as a whole in our society, we tend to over-sexualize these things. When in reality, it really is just like little kids showering together because there wasn't enough hot water to go around. So I feel like that's very important to note that um, you had that innocence and you wrote with that innocence as well. And um, another part that I liked was the last line that said, I finally smiled because I felt like a Rosa. So can you talk a little bit about that feeling of what it's like to feel like a Rosa? My understanding what it feels to be like a Rosa is that you are the person that everybody wants to hang out with. 
Like you, like you are not maybe not necessarily a center of attention, but there's always something revolving around you. And I've never had that in my life because I've always been a third wheel. And which is why like this to me, this is who I am pretty much. This is why I did that. And to me, you meant that people want to shower with you in that moment in my life. <laughs> are you still friends with Rosa today? If yes, do you still feel the same way about her? Well, I'm not friends with her today. We mm. actually haven't spoken since we since I left dance school because oh. it is actually a dance school. It's not just dance camp, yeah. and we actually dance there. <laughs> oh. <laughs> um, but I don't feel differently towards her today. I still think she's a wonderful, beautiful person. So I don't. There's nothing has changed. Except I don't shower with her anymore. That's the only thing that's changed. <laughs> oh my gosh. Good to know. Yeah. <laughs> so for our listeners in the U.S., most people in the United States have never had the experience of having to shower with cold water because we are so privileged with, <laughs> with the ability not to have to go through that. But can you describe briefly how that feels? Um, well, if you've ever watched the movie Frozen... Um, you know when Elsa strikes her sister's heart? Yeah. It's like that. It's like something has striked. She's dying slowly. Maybe a little bit. So if you're dying slowly, you can't take that much time in the shower. So the most you have is about two minutes. And like, you don't even get to wash your hair. You just wet it and you don't even care that you mm-hmm. don't have shampoo in it. And you get out. And that's it. That's not, but cold shower in a nutshell. Oh my gosh. Yeah. For our readers who are from other countries, um, like, the West Indies, for example, they know all about cold showers, and we totally, totally agree with everything you just said. <laughs> so with that, we want to thank you for being here with us today, and thank you for sharing this, and thank you for sharing what it is like to be a Rosa. Our next story is entitled 82 Rutgers Slip by Neja. Neja is a 23-year-old sophomore at John Jay College of Criminal Justice. She has lived in Brooklyn, the Bronx, Manhattan, and on Long Island. She spends most of her days in the house dancing and cooking with her four-year-old daughter or at the park, running, jumping, and climbing with her. 82 Rocker Slip. That place. That place is located at the end of the block on the Lower East Side. It's the only reddish, orangish, yellowish striped building in a row of brown buildings alongside the FDR. Back in 2002, it had its own playground, which was gated in by an iron cast gate with two secure exits. You could get out, but you couldn't get back in. The jungle gym set was yellow and blue, equipped with a red slide. A squishy soft mat sat underneath. 82 Rockers slipped. That place was equipped with the laundry room, a mail corridor, a security booth with cameras, two big shiny elevators, two emergency staircases, and 22 stories. Like me now. 22. 82 Ruckus Slip. That place held the smell of the dirty-ass East River blown through its cracked windows. It was often escorted by the sound of honking cars on the FDR. 82 Ruckus Slip. That place... The place that mommy was finally proud of. It was proof that we had made it. There I was on a playground of that place, age eight, trying to avoid the lava that would burn us alive if we touched it, hopping from bench to bench, from bench to slide, up the slide to the yellow poles, oh yeah, because the jungle gym's floors were lava too. 
to the end of the jungle gym and back to the original bench. Anything to avoid touching the ground. This went on round after round, me losing another one of my comrades each time. At least it wasn't real, you know? They could join back in when the new round starts. Somewhere between the last two rounds and this one, I suddenly had to tinkle. No time for that, though. I was not going to lose this game, and I certainly was not going to go back inside. Not to that place. Back inside didn't used to be bad. We used to play a lot in there. My comrades and I used to go on lots of indoor adventures. Sydney, David, and Byron would all congregate in Byron's room. They would enjoy endless amounts of table ladders and chairs matches with wrestling action figures. All you would hear was a bunch of booming and bamming coming from his room. Those matches got intense. Denia and I would rather engage in more fruitful things. We'd gather all our Barbies up for shopping, tea, and dress up, right in the middle of my floor. Mommy never used to care about our endless hours of pretend, so long as we cleaned up after. But now, it's different. Now, our indoor adventures are a rarity because of the Game Master. She is his matron now. And they play their own games. Games children aren't supposed to play. And that's why I can't go inside to tinkle right now. I have to hold it. I can't go in there. (laughs) I won't. We keep playing. The sun was a vulture in the sky this summer's afternoon. We were falling prey to its rays, and I was really falling prey to my bladder. I know I have to go in soon. I hate when this happens. My own bladder betraying me. I tried everything I very well could to stay out of that apartment at 82 Ruckus Slip. That place. Most days, I spent from shortly after sun up to as long after sun down that I could in that playground. So, I keep playing, but my having a go is slowly but surely messing me up. It's really hard to win at this game if you're hopping around with your legs crossed. Finally, I face the facts. I can't stand it any longer. It's now or have an accident. I decide I have to go in. Into. That place. Leaving the game, I walk past the mailboxes in the laundry room, past the cameras in the security booth to the elevator. At the elevator, I stand with my right foot crossed behind the other, lining it up with my left foot on its left side. I am doing a mixture of rocking and bouncing to prevent an accident from happening. I wonder if I really pushed the weight in too far this time. You would not believe how often I found myself in this predicament. As I wait, my stomach and my intestines jump competitive double dutch. Not the kind that you see on Brooklyn streets in front of the buildings, where the girls jump in the middle of the rope, and it's left foot, right foot, left foot, right foot, both feet, both feet, and eventually she jumps on the rope. Nope, not that kind. This is the kind where you are doing flips, cartwheels, handstands, jumping over your partner's head, and somehow you stumble and fall, and not the rope, all in the same instance. It is that kind of double dutch. Finally, the elevator doors open, and I step out to begin my walk down my own green mile. Left foot, right foot, left foot, right foot. In that order, at that pace, making sure not to let my shoes squeak against the tile floor. I don't want them to hear me outside of the game room I used to call our apartment, our home. That place 
It's basically Game Room 14C now. But I don't want to play. I hold my breath as I grip the knob and turn it slowly to the left. Fuck. It's locked. I ring the bell twice and wait, hoping that the double dutch contest in my abdomen will subside. But it only intensifies when he answers the door. There he is. Tall, brown, muscular, no shirt on, pants unbuttoned and partially unzipped. He looks that way again. A look I would later learn meant that someone was high. He, the game master, the enforcer, the end-all be-all, he lets me in and disappears down the hallway. There she is, half-naked again. A silk camisole with the strap sliding down her shoulders and panties. She is that way again, too. This is the only time they are at peace. The only time the game master isn't bashing her face in. She briefly acknowledges my presence while I stand at the door, still hoping that the competition in my stomach will cease. She has the power to do that. With just a simple warm embrace, this feeling I have will go away. But she is the game master's matron now. She used to be my mom. I begin to go for that warm embrace anyway. But as I step into the hall, the game master appears out of the first room and summons me to him. I hesitate. Looking in her direction for that hug, or even a brief acknowledgement, a glance, a summoning, but nothing comes. I understand, if not anything else, I am his subordinate, and that I better answer his summoning. So into the room I go. He has picked out one of the matron slips, you know, the kind that the lady wears in the movies before your parents tell you to cover your eyes? Yeah, that kind. Here I am, standing in the middle of what resembles a Red Cross disaster zone. Clothes are thrown everywhere, and I'm in nothing more than a slip. You know the kind. And panties. It's like when Dania and I used to play without Barbies. But I'm the Barbie now. I am the toy in this game. I am made to look like the matron. Not a fashionista like when Dania and I used to play. The game master has also picked out a bright red lipstick that belongs to the matron. You know the kind. The kind that bad guy Riri wears? Yeah, that kind. See, but that was a no-no. I was not allowed to play with the matron's makeup during dress-up, especially not the red. I was told red lipstick was for ladies of the night, and certainly not for my eight-year-old self. The matron will whoop my ass if she catches me in it, I think to myself. He leads me down the hall like a puppy on a leash, but there isn't a leash. He doesn't need one. I am his subordinate, and I still have to tinkle. He passes my room and enters the second bathroom across from the last room in the house. Inside, he closes the door behind me and locks it. I assume the position. On my knees, a puppy on his hind legs waiting for a treat. But a treat isn't what I'm waiting for. I'm waiting for a grown-ass man to shove his penis in my mouth. He thrusts it against my clenched teeth and lips. He repeats this action, and this time my lips and teeth part. One last time, and it is in my mouth grazing my teeth. I want that lipstick all over my dick, he says. I close my eyes and wait for it to end. Imagine I am back out on the playground where I am anybody I want to be.
where I can go anywhere I want to, play anything I want to play, where I am anywhere but here. 82 Ruckus Slip, that place. I'm past it now. Just don't take me anywhere near that place. Take the Brooklyn Bridge, not the Manhattan Bridge, from where it can be seen. 82 Ruckus Slip, that place. Don't take the FDR because I know the sound of our car will make it into that place. 82 Ruckus Slip, I promise, I am past it now. I certainly don't play games anymore. Just don't mention 82 Ruckus Slip. It is that place. This is, uh, honestly speaking, one of the most difficult pieces that I've ever like read. So just thank you so much for being here with us today, Nasia, and for sharing something like that, because it couldn't have been easy. But your intentions for sharing it and stuff like that are very, very brave. And I just, I, I just want to thank you for that, personally. You guys are very welcome. So, Nasia, tell us. The tone of your piece is a mixture of innocence and maturity. I think... That symbolizes really well the breaking of innocence. How did you decide to tone your piece? Um, the piece is a very, very personal and emotional one, so yeah. it's a natural. It's a natural tone. It's a how do how did I feel then? How did I feel coming up knowing that? And then it's a how do I feel now? So that's what decided what the tone of the piece would be. In the process of writing it at four in the morning, that's the way that. It just came out, and mm. it worked really, really well for me. Yeah. There's yeah. definitely a voice of, like, innocence from all this playtime and from all these games that you're you're playing with the, with the lava on the floor. And it's something that we've all kind of done when we were little, so everyone can kind of relate to that and remember how innocent they were. But there is also this underlying eeriness to it, and that, that comes from the voice of reflection. So the way that you made that happen was really, really, like, it was it was masterful, I think, I would say. That's true. I remember when I read it um, the first time, and for some reason this line stands out to me the most um, paraphrasing. I think you said something like, you were not looking forward to going home. You know, you were talking about the fact that, that there was, like, this eeriness, this sense that you did not want to be home, but then you kind of had to go. And, like, it was just, I don't know, it stuck with me. Um, through all this time since I read it the first time? Well, I would assume that it makes me feel good about it because, um, Mans, I know you were one of our first CNFers, so that means you were in class with me last semester, which means that if it stuck with you this long, it's been, it's been a while. So was the use of foreshadowing something that you did, like, intend to happen in the piece? Did you, like... Did you want the audience to be kind of, like, alerted that, yes, something bad is going to happen? Or did it just, like, flow like that? It wasn't intentional. The foreshadowing Mm. was not intentional. The foreshadowing happened as the story was told. Because in real life, when you're living life, the way that things happen, you don't think Mm. to yourself that what's going on now is foreshadowing what's to come later. So when you tell the story, I'm not thinking that what's going on now, at this point in the story, is foreshadowing what happens later. It's the chain of chain of events. So I think that's something that happens naturally when you're telling a story, and it's not fictional. It it just yeah. happens naturally. The foreshadowing yeah. comes because it's experience. Yeah, because everything, even the innocent moments, are kind of tainted 
by this non-innocence that's happening. So your entire life just kind of revolve around that. The foreshadowing is just kind of natural. Wow, that's really incredible. You use games like this throughout the piece to describe how you feel as an eight-year-old who was afraid. And I think this is another unique aspect of your story because using these metaphors and games helps to create the world of a child to the listener. And I think this creates a stronger connection between the piece and the listener because listeners can really feel more connected to the piece since they can enter your world as a child. When you were writing the piece, how did you decide how you would use metaphors to create this world full of imagination that the listener could access? Were you inspired by another piece you had read or was this something that just came to you? Um, again, I say that I wrote the piece at four in the morning because that's when it really, you know, hit me that this is, I'm ready to write this piece. And for me, the games were, it came to me as a, what did I do when I was eight? What was Mm. I doing when I was eight before that? Because sometimes when you have those experiences, you forget who you were before the experience so it's a what did I do when did I do it and whereas I doing it at any point in time that day when that experience occurred so it came as something it's something that did just come to me not not necessarily something that I got from somewhere else it's a a lot of times we go through things and we forget who we are and for once in my life I wanted to remember who I was before that eight-year-old One scene that stuck out to me was when you talk about your mom and you say that she briefly acknowledges my presence. Um, Just a simple warm embrace and the feeling will go away. She is the game master now. She used to be my mom. Looking in her direction for a glance, a hug, anything, but nothing comes. That is strong for so many listeners to hear because we are so used to this image of motherhood as anything but what is depicted here. And that's very, very hard. But here, I, you don't blame your mom at all for what happened. But as a listener, you can picture that neglect. And I, I, I definitely do. So do you mind talking a little bit about your relationship with your mom back then? And also, I would like to know like how that relationship has changed, if at all, now. My relationship with my mother back then, she was my idol up until that moment it was a you were my mother so even if I didn't say anything to you you were supposed to know you're supposed to to me you're supposed to be able to read your children you're supposed to know when there's something wrong Mm -hmm. Um, me being a mother myself I take heed to that and reading my child so even if she doesn't come to me and tell me that there's something wrong I know when she's not herself and I felt like that's that's part of where my mother lacked at as a mother you should have known I don't blame her for it because I never told her so I can't assume that she would know but um over the years we've tried to repair that relationship I've tried to you know work with her and help her and help myself to grow but as of today my relationship with my mother is non-existent. So I don't know if that's something that will be that will ever be repairable, 
But right now, the future doesn't seem all that bright. We really are so sorry to hear that. Because so many of us can't imagine a situation like that with our mothers. So to hear that, especially after reading your piece and seeing what you've been through, that's very hard. And we are, we are really so sorry about that. I, I'm going to deviate from the script a little bit. But when we were talking before we started recording, you said your reason why you wanted to come onto the podcast with a story like this and with a story that's so rough and why you didn't even want to be anonymous in this. And that, that also struck me a lot. So do you kind of want to repeat for the listeners like what, what, your, what your goal is in getting this out there? Um, the intentions for writing this story wasn't just to free myself, but to free someone else in the process. Because a lot of times when you are a victim, um, you feel that there is no one else like you. You feel that you're all alone. And when you try to talk to people, people who has who haven't been through it don't understand. So my intentions were by making this piece public and not being anonymous anonymous is a you if you can you can do what I did. You don't have to stop because you're a victim because I no longer see myself as a victim. I see myself as a survivor. So I want anybody else who's been anywhere close to where I've been to see themselves as survivors because what happens to you does not define who you are as a human being. It defines the other person's character. I remember in our um, first CNF class last semester, um, when you wrote your piece, it was kind of like, the moment when everyone decided that they were holding, that they were gonna let everything go and just write whatever it was that they that was on their mind. Like your piece, basically your intention succeeded because when you wrote this piece, everybody was like, okay, she's not playing. So yeah. we're gonna tell her truth as well. And um, I think I came up to you after that class and we spoke and your piece was really inspirational, really inspirational um, just to everyone in that class and everyone who had a similar experience to um, speak up and talk about it. And um, as our listeners will hear in the future, a lot of us really did speak up because of this piece. Yeah. Um, I'm glad that the piece could segue for everyone else to open up and speak out. But I think it was also important for those in our class as well as those around the world, around the John Jay yeah. campus, to understand that even if you haven't been through it, it's a it you can't pass judgment on somebody who has mm. because it opens the door to live that that moment in time with at least me, mm. so that you understand because I know that there were people in our class who didn't or who haven't gone through that, yeah. especially males, yeah, and that that even their responses to the piece makes me feel like there is hope for those of us who have been victimized yeah. that if we start telling our story and people start listening there may be different legislations in the future to help there may be other things that you can do and you will no longer be in society's eyes yeah. a scarlet so to speak oh, you will be a human being you will be a woman 
So that that's that's one of the most important things for me is not just for those who've been through it, but for those who haven't to understand how serious and what's yeah. the severity and the psychological warfare that it causes within an individual. It changes someone's, it really changes Your you. Life. And for people to pass judgment, it doesn't make the healing process any better. It actually makes it worse. Well, thank you, Nisha, for just coming and sharing your story. Um, our listeners will really appreciate the honesty and just the, authentic- the authenticity of everything you just said. Um, thank you for being here again. Again, you guys are very, very welcome, and I hope to return one day in the future. For our last story, we have a double bed by Nikki Marinas. She is a 20-year-old senior at John Jay College who majors in police studies. She's originally from Chicago, Illinois. After graduation, she plans to join the Marine Corps as an officer. Her spare time is split between training and writing. She is looking forward to spending this June traveling Europe and expanding her CNF portfolio. August in Chicago is the worst. That's what the ball decided as she walked home from the bus stop. She dragged her feet up the steps of their suburban home and had never been so excited for nap time. She dropped her backpack at the foot of the stairs and kicked off her shoes as she climbed higher and higher towards the second floor. She barely heard them tumble down the stairs when she saw it. The double bed. There, sitting in the now forest green room, was a brand new bed. It seemed massive compared to her little hand-me-down top bunk bed she had been moved to only days before. Her exhaustion quickly turned into jealousy. The starfish had come to the decision a few weeks before that she now deserved to have her own room. Now, the ball had to share her room with the butt. And the starfish not only got her own room, but a huge, brand new bed all to herself. For months, the ball was jealous every time she passed the starfish's room. The large bed seemed to mock her. That was until the day before Thanksgiving of 1998. That day, the starfish suggested they all sleep together in her massive bed that night so they could begin to celebrate the holiday the moment they opened their eyes. They spent the night huddled together discussing battle plans for the following day's football game. Every year, seven families from the old neighborhood would get together on Thanksgiving morning to play a friendly football game. The families were split into teams, and then the teams were split into offense and defense. The starfish was almost always on offense. Her history as a ballerina helped her jump high to reach the spinning pigskin. The butt would play defense. She was a defender in soccer. No one could get past her. The ball always rushed the other team's quarterback. There were many reasons for this. One was that she was about three feet tall until middle school, which allowed her to get lost in the crowd and surprise the other team. Another was her age. She was so young that no one would argue her ability to count to ten in about four seconds. Soon, the girls would grow too tired to continue their discussion of the impending football game and would move to their bedtime positions instead. The starfish always took the right side of the bed. 
spreading her limbs out so far it seemed as though she was begging the stars to accept her as one of their own. The butt slept on the left, splayed out on her stomach, one knee pressed to her chest, and the other stuck out so diagonally that she touched the starfish's toes. This unique position thrusted her butt ever so slightly into the air, which caused her head to smush into her pillow more than the others. Her mouth stayed open, resulting in a stream of drool that stained the pillow. And the ball curled herself in between the two, making herself as small as possible so she could fit. In the morning, the three had reclaimed different portions of the bed, the heat causing them to separate during the night. The ball's incessant rolling would land her pressed to the wall, one leg stuck in the small crevice and her face plastered against it. The butt was unaffected by the ball's steamrolling maneuver during the night. She stayed put, but the stream of drool had turned into a river before drying up and creating a desert-like crust across her chin. The starfish was slightly more towards the center, but she was still spread out in all directions like the star she would soon wish ballet would make her. After that Thanksgiving, this became a tradition. Every time Santa or the Easter Bunny came for a visit, they'd pile into the massive bed, which somehow seemed to get smaller year after year. They'd ring in the New Year and eventually sort Halloween candy on that bed. But Thanksgiving was special. On that night, they'd pile in and stay up devising strategies for the next morning's football game. As the ball grew, she had to constantly come up with new ways to trick the lineman in order to get to the quarterback. The starfish would remember passes she had missed the year before, hoping her improved pirouettes would allow her to jump higher than years prior. The butt would show them new moves she had learned on the soccer field, hoping they'd stop any of the running backs from getting by her. They'd also discuss what dish they couldn't wait to devour after the game had finished. For the starfish, it was always the turkey. To her, there was nothing better than the main course. But the butt would always disagree, claiming the mashers were the meal's main event. And once you poured the gravy on top, nothing could beat that volcano of taste. The ball never disagreed. She liked turkey and mashers, but nothing could beat her aunt's corn muffins. If it were up to her, that's all she would eat. The moist orange muffins were the highlight of the entire meal. This tradition carried on for seven years, and as those seven years passed, the space shrunk, as did their interest in winning the football game. And as those seven years passed, the space in the bed shrunk, as did their interest in winning the football game. The ball still loved corn muffins, but she began to see the massive bed as what it truly was, a bed only twice the size of her own, a double bed. The last time they all slept together, the sleeping arrangements were less than normal. And the way they slept changed too. The butt would now curl into herself as much as possible, trying to take up the same amount of space the ball once used to take up. The ball now slept at the very foot of the bed, on her stomach, but in the air. The starfish spread more openly than ever before. When they woke that last morning, the butt had reverted to her old ways, the starfish was still a star, and the ball had rolled into the small area left between them, knees tucked into her neck. As the starfish entered her last year of high school, she began to shut the others out. They stopped their holiday sleepovers, and the butt even moved out of the room she'd once shared with the ball. She isolated herself so she could focus on her grades. She would soon be applying to colleges. 
after the starfish was accepted, she began to feel too restricted at home. The fights between her and their parents would happen multiple times a week, always at night and always starting silently. Eventually, they would grow louder, echoing through the vents, and the ball would cringe with anxiety as she struggled to sleep alone in her twin bed. One night, the starfish was caught sneaking out. Later, the ball in the butt would find out she was headed to bail her current boyfriend out of jail. But when she was caught, she refused to tell their parents where she was going. The yelling didn't start quietly that time. It exploded with disappointment and anger. As soon as the starfish reached for the keys to her car, their father threatened to take away college. He said it was a privilege, not a right. The ball, in her bed, alone, curled into herself in an attempt to protect herself from the fight directly below. The starfish took the keys and wasn't seen until lunchtime the next day. She returned lonely and with an empty bank account. To the ball, it looked as though a squid had inked on her face. Later, she would learn to wear waterproof mascara. The starfish left for college a few months later, and the girls never lived together again. They never slept in the same bed, either. The starfish spent her summers working in Colorado, and as soon as she graduated, she left Illinois for a job in Utah. The butt left for college, but returned in the summers. However, she effectively ignored the ball while home, working full-time to pay for books. After graduation, she returned home for two years, but by that time, the ball had finally left for college herself. Now, one week in the summer, one week for Thanksgiving, and one week for Christmas is all they spend together. In the same home, but in different rooms and in different beds. The starfish spends 11 months out of the year in Utah, the butt lives in D.C., and the ball stays in New York. With the butt planning on returning home to Chicago after grad school, the ball struggles to find a place she can call her own. The double bed, which always seems so massive, lives in Utah now, and the room where it once sat was converted into an office. The ball is forced to share her room with the starfish whenever they end up home during the same holidays but they no longer talk of food or battle plans for the football game. In fact, the ball is the only one who still goes to the annual game. They no longer wonder what present Santa will leave for them. Their parents don't even try to be quiet as they bring the gifts down the stairs. Instead, the starfish lays on her blown-up bed, talking to her new boyfriend. It's been 17 years since that first Thanksgiving. The starfish still spreads out like the star she never became, but instead of extending her limbs, her voice echoes through the house as she yells. The butt no longer sleeps on her stomach. She has grown more conservative over the years. She lives like she sleeps, still and silent, always trying to keep the peace. And the ball? The ball still sleeps the same, bouncing from bed to bed, trying to find a place of her own. Oh my goodness, what a heartwarming and also heart-hurting piece that Nikki has given us. We actually have the author, Nikki, here with us today to answer all of my burning questions about this piece. So thank you for joining us here today, Nikki. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to have you. Oh my goodness. <laughs>
this piece is incredibly unique because you use personification in this piece. And I love how the names you've given each character not only match perfectly to their sleeping positions, but also their personality throughout the story. So where did you get the idea for these names? And do these names like still fit your characters today at all? So I actually started the piece kind of further down and it was just with me and my sister sleeping in the same bed together. And I was like, oh, how does my older sister sleep? Oh, it's like a starfish. Mm. Um, And it just kind of worked their way in. And I was like, okay, this works. I'll just because I wanted to try something different and not have them just be their names. Mm. I wanted to kind of create an anonymity to it. So. More than the way that these three girls sleep, I think that your piece deals with that sisterly relationship between the three of you. The ball is fast and uses her ability of being short to her advantage. The starfish stretches when she sleeps and wants to be a ballerina star. And the butt raises her butt when she sleeps, but she also always disagrees on food choices. So what inspired you to write about your relationship with your sisters using their personalities in such a unique way um it actually coincides with the our birth order my oldest sister is the starfish and she when i was younger she always had so much more going on than me so she was always kind of the center of attention Mm -hmm. and my parents were always dragging her back and forth from place to place and we were always rushing to eat family dinner because she had to go to ballet Mm -hmm. and um the butt she always (laughs) always complains about being the middle child Mm. and being left out and being the butt of the joke. And so that it just like was perfect that she ended up sleeping that way. Mm -hmm. And she and me, I just kind of go with the flow. I'm the third kid. So I'm pretty much just go wherever they drag me Mm. and just kind of roll with the punches. Mm. (laughs) So it kind of just fell into place really nicely. Yeah, it was flawless i would say the way that everyone was just matching with their character it's really cool so did a piece by another author inspired you to use personification or was it something that you just decided to experiment with which you kind of touched on beforehand but like um i actually decided to experiment with it in class we um i'd already gone once and a lot of people's were in the first or even the second person and nobody had really done third person and I really wanted I started out just kind of wanting to see where I could go with it and seeing if it even worked and then it started to be like a children's story and I really Mm. liked the innocence of it especially because when the story starts out I was three so I couldn't really tell it from an older point of view because this is just the child in me remembers it this way <laughs> that that's really really interesting that you still kind of remember it as a child and your voice of kind of reflection is still like <laughs> immersed in this child like state that's really cool it's a very traumatizing experience as a three-year-old <laughs> to have your room taken away from yeah. you yeah. and then come home one day and there's a giant bed yeah and you have to sleep in the old bed it's yes. very traumatizing <laughs> And it's like, though you understand it now, there's still a part of you that's like annoyed from when you were three. You're just like pissed off. I mean, I ended up with a bigger room, so I'm okay with it. But... <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's so interesting. 
I love how the transferring of the bed also aligned, that you just mentioned, also aligned with the variations of the characters' relationships. So when the bed was moved to Utah with the starfish, I feel like that that was when the three characters were most distant with each other. Like, it, it all kind of revolved around that bed. So did you include the transferring of the bed to Utah as a form of symbolism regarding the characters' relationships shifting um, from close to distant? Um, yeah, I really tried to make the bed kind of its own character. And because yes. it's such a centerpiece, everything revolves yeah. around it. And um, so when she moved, she was moving like she's staying there forever mm-hmm. from what we know. So she's out there and my other sister was at school and I was stuck at home, just me and my parents. <laughs> and so it just it she took the bed with her and we never did it again and that's kind of how it went (laughs) the bed left and so did the tradition wow yeah and i i did notice that in your piece when the way it's written you capitalize bed every time because the bed was this character the bed was almost like a fourth sister but you know not (laughs) yeah that's something i did after a couple of revisions mm-hmm. and I was like it's so important it has to be capitalized yes. <laughs> <laughs> so interesting oh that makes me sad <laughs> so what was that separation like for you when your sister did leave to Utah and you guys just kind of fell apart in that sense within regards to the bed um it's definitely like obviously difficult to stay in touch with that much separation because we're She's two time zones behind me. Yeah. We're all all over the place. And so, I mean, it's just harder to keep in touch if we're not all in the same area. Um, so back then when we first started spurting off into different parts of the country, um, it was hard because um, I lost my older sister and she <laughs> was kind of like told me what to do and told me what to expect and... Gave me a lot of advice, so it was weird not having her there, and especially going into college and mm. not knowing what to expect, and yeah. so it was kind of hard not having them there, but it was also kind of helped me grow, so grow. It helped me grow, so that's good. <laughs> wow. So, in a sense, you kind of had to grow on your own after all of that, because they were just kind of too far away for you to be able to 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 learn from them yeah I mean I was a few years into high school and both my sisters were gone and I Mm -hmm. kind of figured it out on my own but it was good that's good my heart hurts but that's good (laughs) so in the end you leave us with this really beautiful image and connection to the ball and you say the ball still sleeps the same bouncing from bed to bed, trying to find a place of her own, which just gets me every time. It's just, oh, okay. So are you still bouncing around or have you settled down now? Is the ball comfortable? Um, no, especially with graduation, mm-hmm. like right around the corner. Yeah. That's when you start to like question every decision you've made in college. <laughs> and, um, so, I mean, in the past couple of months, I've been like, oh, I want to settle here. I want to settle here. No, I'm going to do this. And now 
I kind of have an idea, but I'm still going home and taking a year off before I actually do what I want to do. So, no, the ball has no idea what she's doing with her life, nor has she ever. (laughs) And that is okay. It's okay to still be rolling around life trying to figure it out because no one has answers. And that certainly don't. I don't think I ever will. Me neither. And that's okay. I think it's a good thing. Yeah. What do you want our Life Out Loud podcast readers or listeners to take away from your story? Um, I really want them to take away the connection to family because for me, I, me and my sisters have gotten a lot closer through like because now we have to make an effort to actually like communicate with each other like we plan when we're going to talk to each other so we actually like have time and we're not just like randomly calling each other and i'm like i'm asleep (laughs) stop calling me um so we've actually like it's actually worked out really well and we still Mm -hmm. like see each other in person like three times a year Mm -hmm. um so the distance has actually kind of helped us communicate better because We have to put an effort into it. So I guess what I really want the readers to get is the importance of like family and especially siblings because they learn before you do so they can Mm -hmm. give you advice and make sure you don't do the same stupid things they do even if you end up doing them anyway. (laughs) (laughs) She's so right. You're just you're just so right. That's just so true. It's kind of good. That you don't see it now as kind of too late. You know what I mean? Yeah, definitely. You're still kind of learning from them. And I imagine that your conversations are so much more meaningful now because you have to make what time you have between your busy lives meaningful. Yeah. So especially because they're in the real real world, (laughs) I guess, now. So they're like, it's it's really bad. It sucks out here. So prepare yourself. But you'll do great. So it's good to have that. And you will do great. We all believe so. (laughs) So thank you so much for coming Thanks for having me. Nikki, thank you so much. All my burning questions. (laughs) That's all we have for tonight. We just want to say thank you to our writers, our sound engineers and editors, our episode writers, and our website developer, everyone. There's a lot of people behind the scenes here at Life Out Loud. You can find out more at www.lifeoutloudpodcast.com and or tune in on Radio 568. A very special thank you to our audience for joining us. We hope you love these stories just as much as we did. It was such a joy to bring them to you. Good night. Good night.